All right. Just just fade it in from here. All right. All right. Matthew chapter 5. Let's look at verses 13 to 16. Might be a little familiar. All right. Let's read that together. I'm going to read it from the ESV. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Amen. And here on the Sermon on the Mount, this is the first time that Jesus refers to God as Father. That's not what my message is on, though. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. And we talked about last week. How as Christians, we need to be like salt. We need to be distinct and yet fully involved. So last week, I really talked about being distinct and just touched a little bit about getting fully involved. Getting out the salt shaker, you know what I mean? Salt is not meant to be just in the salt shaker. The whole purpose of the salt shaker is so that you can shake some salt out of it and put it on your meat and put it on your food. So that you can uh, preserve food, so that you can flavor food. And that's why Christians, we need to get out the four walls of our church. Because we have a salt effect on the world. I talked a little bit about getting out the salt shaker. And today I'm going to really focus on that theme. As salt of the earth, what does it mean to be fully involved in our world today? And I think this this is an area that you need to... In, you need to approach in a balanced manner. All right. And so let me start with this. Just stay with me on this. All right. I'm going somewhere. The world is like the Titanic. It is sinking. Everything aboard the Titanic looks great. There are love stories happening on the Titanic. There are wealthy and poor. People who are working class. People that are working less class. The world is like the Titanic. And a lot of people are on board, but they don't know that the world's sinking. And as this Titanic is sinking, it is up to us as the church... To tell people about the good news of Jesus Christ as soon as possible. We need to tell people that the Titanic is sinking. The world is sinking. It's going to perish. And we need to warn people to flee the judgment that is to come. To flee the wrath that is to come. And so, what's the use of trying to make the Titanic look nicer? What's the use of trying to fix the curtains or rearranging the furniture on the Titanic? It's all going to sink anyway. So let's focus on warning the people that are aboard. Get them onto the lifeboats of the gospel. It's good, right? So let's forget about reforming the education system. Forget the government, forget the entertainment industry, forget about trying to build a business. Let's push all of our resources to evangelism and missions. People are going to go to hell unless we go out and evangelize. I told you I'm going somewhere, stay with me. And so if you say, well, I want to start a business. You say to them, what's what's the point of that? The Titanic is sinking. Focus on evangelism. Well, I have a dream to be a singer. Hey, why are you so selfish? Let's get out there and evangelize more. Okay. 
Forget all of that. There are two possible worldviews that two possible views that Christians can adapt toward the world. And in my ethics class, I just read the first chapter of John Stott's book, uh, and it covered this topic. And I thought, you know, it coincided with my message last week, so I thought I'd go in a little deeper with you guys. There are two views that Christians generally take to the world. Number one, it's called escape. Everyone say escape. escape. Second is engagement. Engagement. Escape involves turning our backs to the world, hardening our hearts to the world's cries for help, and simply focusing on what matters for eternity. Souls. Winning souls. That's, what all, that's all that matters. That's what escape involves. Engagement involves reaching out to the world in compassion, even when it's costly and inconvenient. Now, escapism is the view that I described with my Titanic analogy here. And it is the one that most evangelical Christians today, they focus on. It's the escape mentality toward the world. Let's focus on evangelism. Let's focus on missions. What's the use of trying to reform an education system that's all going to perish anyway. Let's just focus on the lost. Focus on getting people saved. It's sad, but many evangelical Christians have no sense of social responsibility today. Their sole focus is on missions and evangelizing the lost. They focus on verses like Matthew 28, 18 to 20. Jesus said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them everything I have commanded you. And surely I'm with you to the end of the age. They focus on verses like Mark 16, verse 15 to six, uh, chapter 16, verse 15 to 16. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Whoever does not believe will be condemned. Many evangelical Christians focus on these verses, on this emphasis. But we have to remember that the same Jesus said, that said these things, he also said, you are the salt of the earth. If salt has lost its taste, how shall it be, its saltiness be restored? It is not, no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. He also went on to use another analogy, if you didn't get the point. He said, you are the light of the world. Not the light of the church. Playing you in here, you're the light of the church. You're such a blessing to the church, that's great. But are you shining that light in the world? How many of you guys know light shines the brightest in the darkness? When a whole bunch of lights are in here, everybody shining that light, you can't even tell what light is. All right, I love that Stacey Campbell story where Stacey Campbell's at, at the Walmart with her daughter. And they just bought a flashlight and the daughter's like, like this. And it's like, hurry up, mom, so I could go find some darkness. Because that's where light belongs. Light shines brightest in the darkness. And Jesus said, you're the light of the world. The world's pretty dark, isn't it? Well, you're the light. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. That's what Jesus said. What did Jesus do? Let's talk about what Jesus did. Because Jesus went around preaching the good news. But he also did other things. Let's see, what did Jesus do? Acts 10.38. You guys should have this memorized. Uh, we have an evangelist outreach that we have every third Friday of the month called 10.38. It's after Acts 10.38. Acts 10.38, I have it memorized how Jesus went around doing, he was anointed by the Holy Spirit. He went around doing good and healing all those who were oppressed of the devil. Jesus went around healing all who were oppressed of the devil. He didn't go around just healing only those who will come to believe in him. Wherever. You know, what, what do you believe in? I believe in uh, the God of Molech. It's okay. You're sick. Let me heal you. He didn't say, are you going to turn from that idolatry and believe in me? No, he just he, he healed the sick. He healed all who were oppressed of the devil. I mean, you know, the devil, man, he'll oppress, he'll oppress Christians, Hindus, atheists. He don't care. 
He just wants to oppress. He, he just wants to be in control. He wants to play God. The Bible also says in 1 John 3, 8, this is another awesome memory verse. I would highly recommend the sons and daughters of the house to memorize this. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus appeared in human form. The Son of God appeared in human form. And the Bible says Jesus appeared to destroy the works of the devil. Then say the reason the Son of God appeared was to get a lot of people to heaven. Because that's what a lot of us evangelicals are thinking. Not the main reason why Jesus came. So he can die on the cross and forgive our sin and take us to heaven. Very man-centered uh, view on the reason why even Jesus came. And you have to understand, man, when Jesus came on the earth, he had a personal vendetta. When Satan tempted Adam and Eve, made them fall, and brought about all the sin and death in the world, Jesus took that personally. Jesus is like, Satan, I'm going to get you. I've taken it so personally, I'm going to come down myself. And then Satan's like, well, I'm going to get you. Because there's this super undercover agent I placed within your apostles. You don't even know Jesus. But Jesus is like, I know Judas. But you can still have some bread. Jesus took it personally and he came onto the earth. Not only to get a bunch of you to heaven. But he came to destroy the works of the devil so that God will get glory. Not just at the very end, but it's like a story that's climaxing to the very end. There should be an increase of the glory of God on this earth. Not just in a big lifeboat getting filled with people going to heaven. But with the kingdom manifesting on the earth. It's like Jesus saying that this earth is mine. I created it. I'm redeeming it. And one day I'm going to return to it. Now, stay with me here today. I'm going somewhere. Uh, John Stott said it like, like this. He said, our God is a loving God who forgives those who turn to him in repentance. But he is also a God who desires justice. And he asks us, as his people, not only to live justly, but to champion the cause of the poor and the powerless. End quote. Now, although modern evangelicals have become desensitized toward social concern with their escapist attitude, this was not the attitude of those who have gone before us. So let me describe a little bit of church history for you. The great revivals of the 18th century is very well known for having produced just multitudes of converts. John Wesley, George Whitfield, they will preach and they will preach with the power of the Holy Spirit. It's known that when John Wesley started his open air preaching, he, he was a little bit stiff, but George Whitfield, Calvinist, he got him broken in. Told him how to do some open air preaching. His first preaching, one of the first ex preaching experiences, it was actually the Moravians and George Whitfield. They both kind of influenced him. Anyway, Wesley steps out to the mining field, like the mining mines, the, the mining caves, whatever, right? And there's these like workers, they're all covered in, 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 in coal, yeah. <laughs> black stuff. It's all just covering them, and they're just not interested in anything. They're tired from a hard day's work. John Wesley goes up to him and starts preaching the gospel. And we said what, what ended up happening was there were just white streaks that had started appearing because these coal miners started to cry as they heard the gospel message. It's one of the famous stories, right? So we know that the evangelical revival of the 18th century produced many converts. But what people really don't know is not only is it known for leading people to Christ, 
But it is also known for its widespread philanthropy. For example, John Wesley preached the gospel in such a way that it actually inspired people to take up social causes. John Stott says, Historians have attributed to Wesley's influence rather than to any other fact that Britain was spared the horrors of a bloody revolution like that in France. Anyone know about what happened in France? I didn't know until my church history class last semester. It's crazy, man. Crazy, man. All these French people got killed. Anyway, I don't, I, don't, I don't know. Anyway, so they attribute to Wesley why Britain didn't have to go through that. Because everybody went through the Enlightenment period and all the reactions to the Bible and all, these, all this liberal theology coming in. Everyone went through that. But people are saying it's because of Wesley that Britain didn't go through a bloody revolution. After Wesley, the next generation continued to carry this unequal uh, an enthusiasm for both evangelism and social action. So in a town south of London, a group of young men were concerned with the injustice that they saw in the African slave trade of that day. And they engaged the issue through the parliament, through the government. And this group became known as the Clapham Sect. I don't know if I'm saying the town, town right. Clapham sect. Everyone say Clapham sect. But in the parliament, they just knew them as the saints. The most famous in this group, William Wilberforce. But he wasn't alone. He had a group of friends. And it took them 20 years of pressing in and contending for the kingdom to see the emancipation uh, no, to see the abolition, abolition of the, the end of the slave trade. <laughs> Took them 20 years. But they didn't stop there. They fought for another 20 years to see the freedom of those who were already in slavery. These men, they were wealthy aristocrats. They had nothing personal to gain from engaging in these issues. But they did it as a natural overflow of their Christian faith. Because they had a biblical Christian faith. One that was balanced. One that understood how to, how to interpret the scriptures in a sound way. They were guided by sound understanding of scripture. They knew that Jesus called them to be the salt of the earth. And to be the light of the world. How salty and bright were they? Well, not only did they engage the slave trade issue, but they also went on to seek government reform. They got involved with media and education. They sought the rights of the poor British colonies. They helped spread the gospel. They established the Bible Society and the Church Missionary Society. They brought about factory legislation, and they put an end to gambling and cruel animal sports. Now, those were a bunch of salty Christians. These group of guys will regularly discuss the wrongs and injustices in their country. And then they will come up with plans to fight these injustices and to establish righteousness. Come on now. Their story needs to be told more. In America, the anti-slavery voices were mostly from the converts from Charles Finney's revivals. That's also noted in uh, American history. Finney was an, Charles Finney was another revivalist. A biographer, Georgina Battiscombe, said, Most of the great philanthropic movements of the century have sprung from the evangelicals. That's a, I believe this is a non-believing biographer. Right? And this is what historians, secular historians say. This is the reputation that the church had. The church had. Brothers and sisters, we have to recognize this is our heritage. But what happened? Why have we lost this saltiness? Okay, and uh, the book explains, uh, the American historian Timothy Smith describes 
the major shift that took place from 1900 to 1930, especially after World War I, he calls it the Great Reversal. And he points out five reasons why evangelicals abandoned their commitment to social concern. Five reasons. All the torch graduates should know these five reasons, or they should be familiar with them. You didn't read this book? Come on now. Let me educate you right now. Five reasons why evangelicals abandoned their commitment to social concern. Number one, the fight against liberalism. If you guys know, shortly after the Enlightenment, uh, because it was a very Christianized society in which people lived, uh, people took Christianity as kind of like a second thought. It was, like a, it was just natural for everybody to be a Christian. Everybody and their mama was a Christian. And what they did in reaction to the Enlightenment was they tried to neuter the Bible, neuter Christianity, take out all the supernatural elements, and try to reason, use reason as the key to understanding God, understanding even theology. So a lot of liberal theology came up out of this. And as liberal theology's influence increased, it resulted in a neglect of evangelism. And so evangelicals felt that they had no choice but to be preoccupied with the defense and proclamation of the gospel because nobody else was doing it. Nobody else seemed to care. So from 1910 to 1915, there was a series of 12 books. I never knew this. Series of 12 books that were published called The Fundamentals. In which the term fundamentalism arose from. Oh, come on, you guys don't, don't know about that term? <laughs> yeah, you, you, you read the media, you know? Fundamentals, you know, they always use that as a negative term to label Christians that are all crazy obsessed with the fundamentals. Man, this is just, this is just regular Christianity. Anyway, um, I guess, you know, anyway, anyway I, I don't get into that. So, evangelicals are so busy contending for the fundamentals of their faith, they felt that they had no time for social concern. So that's one reason. Second reason, the rejection of what's called the social gospel. In the early 1900s, there was what is called the social gospel, which was developed also by theological liberals. This, it, the uh, social gospel in it, the aim is to bring about a Christian society by social and political action. And so uh, a lot of scholars criticized capitalism, and they advocated a Christian socialism. So, you know, a lot of evangelicals were like, man, that's not right. That's not biblical. They felt that that was off. So they concentrated on evangelism and personal philanthropy, and they began to abandon social, socio-political actions because they felt like it was too close to the social gospel. They had to differentiate themselves from the social gospel. Another reason was the impact of war. After World War I, there was a widespread disillusionment and pessimism. You have to understand, up until this point, Industrial Revolution, everybody's thinking the world is becoming a better place. There is an inherent good in all people. And with technology, with advancements... With innovation, with the enlightenment, the world is becoming a better place because it's becoming a smarter place. That was the momentum that was leading up to World War I. And when World War I hit, it affected the whole known uh, world, including America. And after that, a disillusionment set in. Because the church started to realize, oh, maybe people aren't so good after all. Maybe the Bible was right. There is no one who does good apart from God, apart from a biblically sound Christian faith. There is no real good. People are evil. People are wicked. And so, you know, people got really disillusioned by all this. So they, they thought humanity seems uh, immune to reform. So why even bother? Number four, the influence of premillennialism. Now, I would, I would qualify this by saying the influence of dispensational premillennialism. All the preaching class people, take your notes right now. <laughs> dispensational premillennialism. It's different. Okay, anyway. There's a guy named John Nelson Darby. And at the beginning of the 20th century, he started teaching 
dispensationalism. And it was popularized by what's called the Schofield Bible, which was kind of like the NIV study Bible at that time. And a lot of people read it, even non-dispensationalists. So in it, he portrays the world as evil and beyond improvement or redemption. And he predicts that it will deteriorate steadily. It will get worse and worse until Jesus returns. So if the world is getting worse and worse and only Jesus can fix it, what's the point of trying to reform it? I'll read a quote. He says, uh, or somebody said, adopting political programs is like cleaning the staterooms on the Titanic after it has hit the iceberg. It is far more important simply to preach the gospel and rescue souls for the next life. So you can understand where I got my Titanic analogy from, right? It seems, it sounds right. It sounds great. People were like, amening in the beginning, right? We got to be balanced. Anyway, so I mean, I, anyway, I, yeah, so that's dispensational premillennialism, not just premillennialism, okay? And one part, another part of dispensational premillennialism that you guys probably, probably know about is uh, the rapture. It's called a pre-tribulation rapture. Americans love it. Only place that I found pre-tribulation rapture to be popular is in America. It ain't popular in India. It's not popular in China. Not popular in, you know, Muslim world where, you know, Christians get persecuted all the time. It's only popular in America where everyone has a good. And they rather have Jesus return and take them out of you know, their, their little fenced, you know, house and two dog, uh, one dog and two kids, whatever, you know, and their little American dream. And then Jesus raptures them out and, you know, problem solved. Jesus returned. Now, and so we have this movie called Left Behind, the book series of Tim LaHaye and then the Kirk Cameron movie, Left Behind, right? So in the movie, the movie starts with there's people in airplanes, people in cars, and all of a sudden the pre-tribulation rapture happens. Jesus just takes up everybody who's a Christian. And all of a sudden, airplane pilots gone, stewardesses are gone, children are gone, just clothes. Because they can't take their clothes with them on the rapture. So they leave naked, you know. So everybody's gone and everyone's naked. Everyone's freaking out. Oh, no. Now, Kirk Cameron's this reporter that's got to figure out what happened. And he starts investigating the claims of the gospel, things like that. Okay. Popularized by dispensational premillennialism. Now, when you have that attitude that you believe that if there's a preacher of rapture coming, what's the use of engaging the world? What's the use? You know, they're teaching all these lies in our education system. Ah, that's too bad. Sucks for you. I'm done with school. I'm looking forward to the rapture. Okay, that's another reason why there was this great reversal. Uh, fifth reason was the rise of the middle class. As the middle class started to rise up, Christianity spread among the middle class, and the middle class diluted Christianity. Instead of being the salt of the earth and preserve their culture, preserve their society from immorality, preserve their society from going to hell, they rather preserve the status quo. But if we're faithful to God and his word, the church cannot turn a blind eye toward injustices that we see in the world. And we've got to take action. We have to confront injustice wherever the church is placed and wherever the church finds injustice. So anyway, those are five reasons why there was this great reversal. And so now evangelicals have kind of abandoned their commitment to social concern, although they do some of it. They've abandoned most of their commitment to it. They've forgotten the stories of the Clapham sect, the William Wilberforce. And they're just focused simply on evangelism and missions. Now, I don't want to blame those who've gone before us. Uh, the book talks about how if we were in the same shoes, we might have reacted the same way. But here's a little news for you. I'm not in their shoes. So I believe that we have uh, 
the John Stott believes it happened sometime in the 60s that there was a little bit of opening now for evangelicals to start getting involved with social concerns. But I, I believe we're, we still have that problem. When I grew up, that was the only emphasis I had. Campus Crusade, I mean, that was the em- only emphasis we had. Now, most of, most of the evangelical ministries, that, the churches, they, that's their only emphasis. Evangelism missions, right? We talk about seven mountains, and they're like, what is that, you know? This is all about evangelism missions. Now, my message, I'm going to call it the great kingdom reversal reversal. <laughs> we just call it the great kingdom reversal. Okay. I believe we're living at a time where the God's, God's just flipping it all around, all right around. He's going to reverse it again. And it's going to be like what was held up is now being released. The eyes that have been blinded, they're going to be opened. The scales are going to fall off and the church is going to start rising up. Let me tell you how important it is for the church to be the salt of the earth. To be the light of the dark world. Let me tell you how important it is. All you have to do is point out examples where the church stopped being salty. And you observe what happens to that society. Germany was the home place, the birthplace of the Reformation. Germany, after the Reformation, produced the greatest theologians the world has ever known. A lot of theology is written in German. And German happens to uh, be a masterful language in which you can write theology because you can invent words, apparently, in Greek. I mean, in German. In Greek. <laughs> Greeks everywhere. Uh, in German. So anyway, German is this very powerful language in which you can write about theology. And there's some of the best theologians came out of Germany. But after the Enlightenment period, started getting mad liberal, right? And as it got liberal, there were kind of unbalanced emphasis going on in the church in Germany. And what happens? Right after World War I, right after all the disillusionment, you know, they, they chase the enlightenment. They're like, yeah, everybody, yeah. It's all about reason. It's all about logic. It's about rationale, rationalism. Science is, is not in contention with the Bible. Science can actually explain what really happened at creation. You know, all this like liberal influence, right? And so every, there's this test, uh, optimism that everybody had that the world's getting become a better place. World War I happens. Affects Germany incredibly, right? They get mad disillusioned. So they're like, well, that's not the answer. Well, who has the answer? There was this vacuum created. That was the best opportunity for the church to rise up and says, we got to go back to what the reformers taught. Snap. Come on now. That was the best opportunity for the church to rise up and speak into that society. And say, we have the solutions. We got to rise up. We got to engage the politics. But what did the church do? They withdrew. They were like, we don't know either. So Hitler said, I'll take it. And 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 the worst part is, even as Hitler was rising to power, the church mostly did nothing. Except the Dietrich Bonhoeffers and the, and the Karl Barts, the church, most of those brilliant theologians did nothing. They got into agreements with the uh, Nazi party. The salt of the earth lost its saltiness. And Hitler took over an entire nation. The nation in which the Reformation was birthed. Interesting story, huh? Let me tell you another story. You rewind a little bit more. You go back to the dark ages. When the church is not being salty, we have the dark ages. Where the word of God is being uh, kept hostage by the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, where uh, the Roman Catholic Church introduces a lot of syncretism, a lot of mixing with pagan rituals and stuff like that. Things that are not really found in the Bible. And because they have this doctrine of, you know, the church's supreme authority. So they, whatever they call, that's, that's dogma. That's, that's orthodoxy. 
And so we have dark ages where the, where the church really needed to confront these injustices and say, no, church, uh, Catholic church, you're being corrupt. You're introducing way too many pagan uh, influences into our Christian faith. Right? Well, the church didn't do that. The church didn't do that for hundreds of years. And we had the dark ages. It affected the entire landscape of Europe. You went from this thriving, prosperous Greek culture, Roman culture, technology. You know, they have things that they developed during the uh, Greek and Roman times that we still can't figure out. How do they build these crazy buildings without cranes (laughs) and plastic and materials that we have today? How did they do that? We don't know. We still don't know. <laughs> How do you go from the apex of innovation, creativity, culture like that, and poof, you go to the dark ages? It's because the church forfeited their place. Because what do you happen at the Reformation? What, do you, what, do you hap- what happens at the Reformation? The church starts to confront the injustices, starts to bring the light of the gospel back in, starts to bring the word of God back in. And it not only touches the church and to Christians, but it touches the entire continent. Brings about this huge movement of uh, reformation. You know, um, a lot of the music that we enjoy today came, you know, at the reformation, there was also a reformation of music. There was an innovation of music. So all of these brilliant people like Sebastian Bach and Beethoven, a lot, a lot of them were Christians. They would just sit there, you know, with their OCD t- symptoms. And, just... <laughs> and all of a sudden, they, they get... I'm sorry, I'm sorry about that. That's offensive. I don't know what they did. They were just sitting there at the piano, and all of a sudden, they get these downloads. Brilliant music. Man, classical music so complex sometimes it gives me a headache. I was like, how did that come out of a man? I don't think it just came out of a man. It came out of the illumination of the gospel. It came out of the spirit of God. You know, a lot of the rock and roll music, a lot of the hip-hop, a lot of the bluesy, jazzy influences that we have today, we reap from that. You know, even a lot of the Christian songs we sing. You know, where, if you trace music history back to, you know where that goes back to? I studied this in my NYU class, right? African-American music history. When you trace all the influences of rock and roll, you know where it goes back to? It goes back to blues, which goes back to jazz, which goes back, well, well jazz to blues, and then it goes back to spirituals. It was the slave spirituals being sung on the cotton plantations that served as the inspiration for what we thought was a European hymn called the Amazing Grace. That tune, if you look at the hymnal, it says uh, music unknown. You know, and uh, the guy who wrote it, he used to be a slave ship owner. And so people believe that he used to hear these melodies being sung by the slaves coming up chained up from their ships. And after he got converted, he remembered the the haunting melody and put words over it. Spirituals, African spirituals are the base and foundation out of which blues came and jazz came. You know, like no education and these African-Americans are producing the most incredible music in the world. That's because those spirituals were sung by spirit-filled Christians. Anyway, man, I'm not going to get into that. All right, let me give you another example. Uh, Philippines. I'll give you an example of Philippines. Have you been, ever been to the Philippines? Philippines is a wonderful country. There's thousands of islands. But you've never been to Philippines, man. It is poor. You can go to Manila. You can go to Mall of Asia. But don't let us deceive you. Mall of Asia is not the rest of the Philippines. It is seriously poor. And I'm just picking Philippines out of all the many Asian countries that we've been to. If you go there, you, you, tend to, you begin to realize, you know what? I take running water for granted. 
I take electricity for granted. I take nice electric wires that I never noticed on the streets for granted. Because why? You go to the Philippines and it's just there for your children to touch. They can go climb up on it because it's all hanging everywhere. Just big, big garbs of wire. Electricity, you know? People getting electrocuted all the time because it's everywhere. People living in makeshift shafts. Makeshift shacks. (laughs) I don't know what a shaft is. Makeshift shacks. The country is poor. I'll tell you why it's poor. Because the Philippines, the church in the Philippines, they have no grit for engaging social action. A lot of the Catholics in Philippines, they're not, they're not practicing Catholics. They're not born-again Christians. A lot of them are just ritualistic. It's syncretistic. Because if you ever go to a Catholic shrine in the Philippines, it will remind you of a Hindu shrine. It will remind you of a Buddhist shrine in Cambodia. It looks exactly the same. Why? Because it's the same demons that inspired that shrine. Running people into idolatry. Now, the good news is, I heard, now I heard, I did not find news sources yet, so you can't quote me yet. But Marie Suazo, all right, she came back from her trip to the Philippines recently, and she told me that Manny Pacquiao became, became a Christian. The world's best boxer, live alive, just became a Christian. Have you guys know he has been uh, running for ele- uh, political office? You know why he runs for political office? Because Manny Pacquiao came out from the slums of General Santos. And without any money, he went to Manila and tried to start a boxing career. He came up out of the poorest of the poor. So after he becomes successful, what's he going to do? Just live in his mansion? No. He wants to reform his country. Manny Pacquiao has a better understanding of Matthew chapter 5 than most evangelical Christians today. And praise the Lord. He had a born-again Christian experience. That's what happened, right, Marie? All right, I better find some sources now. Okay. I'm really happy about that. I love Manny. Manny Pac-Man, Pacquiao. You know what I'm saying? Knockout punch for, to the devil. Satan, take that! You know? I'm telling you right now, if the church will be the salt and the light in the Philippines, within 20, 30 years, the Filipino infrastructure will be greatly reformed. Education systems will reform. People will not be oppressed by corruption in business, corruption in politics. Christian influences will begin to stamp out that corruption. Don't be deceived by China either. China is experiencing incredible Spiritual conversions. Many people getting saved. And, I, and, and, and maybe 15, no, 10 years ago. Man, I'm getting old. 10 years ago, as I heard about the underground church uh, revival in China, I got really excited because I started to also hear that those Christians were also in positions of communist political power. So I was like, all right, we're getting some of our boys in there. Maybe they will change some of the ways. And so when China started moving toward capitalism, I was like, oh, yeah, maybe those are some of the influences of the church in China. And then I look at their record, their consistent record of how they deal with North Korean refugees. And I realized, you know what? Those Christians that might be there in the political powers in China, they seem to have zero influence. They're like lots. They might go in there and say, hey, hey, we need to do something for these North Korean refugees. We need to go, we need to go, we, we can't repatriate them back to North Korea. They're going to get killed. But they seem to have no influence because Chinese government doesn't even flinch. They have consistently repatriated North Koreans back to North Korea. And that tells me, man, there's no salt and light effect the Christians are having in China right now. If you guys know the situation in China, read into the situation in China. Business in China is in very big trouble. Environment in China, environmental issues are just escalating. You know how many riots there were? This was at least five years ago. I used to listen to this podcast called China Light. I don't know how accurate it was. But in, in there, it was a Christian view, uh, viewpoint toward China. And it was a podcast that was recorded in Hawaii. And they would, they would, you are right, honey? 
Everything okay? And they will publish, uh, they will continue to talk about the riots that were going on in China. Because what would happen is, they would take all of these rural people, bring them into near the city to build all of the roads and highways for the city, promise them that they're going to get paid at the end of the project for one year's worth of work. And then at the end of the project, they all get a slap in the face. Now, if you work for a whole year, promised pay, and you don't get it, what would you do? I mean, I'll get crazy. I work one year to build these roads. I will work one year to destroy these roads. <laughs> Give me my money right now. All right. And so, you know what? Literally, these rural people, you know what? Very nonviolent people. They started killing CEOs, attacking managers, rioting. A lot of them, when they, they, they did that and nothing happened, they would go into the cities and start gangs. Some of these people are probably the same people that exploit children, maim the children, blind the children so they can be more effective beggars. Man, it all goes back. Don't be deceived, man. When the church is not doing their part to engage social action, that the world around them starts to deteriorate and fall apart very quickly. You know why? Because we are the salt. Without the church being salty in society, the preserving effect of salt is not there. Without even just a remnant, you don't even need like thousands of people in the city. If you just have a remnant of Christians being Christians, they're going to affect the entire city. They're going to affect the entire, entire nation even. It just takes a remnant. But that remnant needs to be strong. That remnant needs to be committed. They need to be faithful. And it'll have a preserving effect on the morality of the society. You know why Sodom and Gomorrah, Sodom got rained down with fire from heaven? It's because there were no righteous people in there. And Lot was not being salty. He was one of the few in there that would, that would identify with God, Yahweh. And he had no influence whatsoever. You know, the irony is, the Bible says that Lot and his family, as they walked away, the angels said, go forward, don't look back. Because we can't start destroying the city until you're far away. Don't look back. The Bible says they're walking. And Lot's wife turned around and looked, and she turned into what? A pillar of salt. I think God has a message for you right there. (laughs) This is what you're supposed to be, girl. I told you not to turn around. Bam! (laughs) Teach you to despise my word. Now you can be what I told you you're supposed to be. Uh, I'm just saying, like, maybe, maybe that happened. I don't know. I don't know. But it's kind of ironic to turn into a pillar of salt. We got too many pillars of salt in the church right now. We need to get out. We need to understand. Now, we evangelicals. uh, Anyway, uh, I'm sorry. Before I get into that, Pastor Myoha last night preached a message about Korea, right? And she's got it right on. We're not here as Christians, foreigners, expats from all over the world living in Korea just so that we can go to church, worship Jesus, Get more mature, evangelize and win some people, go on mission trips and feel good about ourselves, and then leave Korea or get raptured or go to heaven or whatever, die, right? <laughs> it's not the point. God also calls you not only to be here, evangelize, do missions, but He also calls you to be here, change Korea. Here, I need some change in Korea. There you go. Here's some Christians. Here's some Christians from Canada. Here's some Christians from the Philippines. Here's one from Malaysia. Here comes America. <laughs> I'm playing, I'm playing, I'm playing. Let me sprinkle my people 
And if my people will be my people, then Korea will change. And I believe these people, my people from outside will have a fresh perspective to give to the people, the church in the in Korea, and will awaken Korean Christians to be salt and light. And the nation will be changed. Education systems will be reformed. Suicide rates will drop. The only way to let suicide drops suicide rates drop is not just to evangelize the youth. It's not the only solution. So wake up, church. We got to be involved with both. Now, I do believe that there is a uh, priority we place on the gospel. Now, I'll talk about that in a moment. But, you know, as evangelicals, we understand the gospel of salvation, but we know very little about the gospel of the kingdom. Let me teach you a little bit. We have a one-dimensional perspective on advancing the kingdom. A lot of Christians, we believe that advancing the kingdom is about getting people saved and getting them to heaven. That's about, that's about as far as they will go. But what they don't realize is Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He didn't say your will be done on earth after your people go to heaven. He says your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven right now. And Jesus said, I'll tell you when the now is. Bam, I'm on the earth. Time is now. Repent for the kingdom of God is near. The manifestation, the full manifestation of the kingdom just began as I stepped onto the earth. The plan of God just shifted with Jesus' arrival. And it's supposed to increase. The increase of his government will know no end. When Jesus arrived on the earth, it was supposed to increase. The gospel of salvation says, believe in Jesus so you can go to heaven. The gospel of the kingdom says, believe in Jesus so you can bring heaven down to earth. Jesus began his ministry by saying, repent for the kingdom is near. He didn't preach, repent so you can go to heaven. He had this kingdom obsessed. You know, kingdom uh, obsessed, I can't say that. It was a kingdom centric message. Not just an evangelistic message. Do you guys hear what I'm saying? There's a difference. The gospel of the kingdom involves manifesting on earth what it looks like when Jesus is in charge. When the government is on his shoulders. That's what the gospel of the kingdom is all about. About manifesting through his people what it looks like when Jesus is in charge. Now, question then comes. Is the whole earth going to come under the reign of Jesus? Through, through the church, is the whole earth supposed to come under the reign of Jesus? Well, biblically, yes. If you have a literal view of the millennium, which is, which is why I subscribe to. So, I would say yes. Jesus is going to reign over the whole earth. If there is a literal millennium, that's what the millennium is all about. Thousand years, Jesus is going to have rule on the earth. And it will be every corner of the earth. Now, don't, don't get too caught up on that. You got to read up more if you, if you don't know what I'm talking about right now. But my question is, yeah, that's what happens when Jesus arrives. But does it have to begin when Jesus arrives? Maybe Jesus will appreciate a little momentum. <laughs> Jesus said in the Gospels, he says, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? He said, when I come to establish my reign over all the earth, will I find faith? What kind of church am I going to find living on the earth? I believe when Jesus returns, he's looking for a victorious and radiant bride. One that is continually confronting and destroying the works of the devil. Because that's the reason Jesus came. And that's the reason why his people are on the earth. If, if Jesus is just all he cares about is getting us to heaven, why not just take us up now, Lord? If Jesus, that's your primary concern, just take us up now. Jesus is like, well, that's not my only concern. My concern is for my glory. 
on the earth and you're going to manifest it. It's going to happen through you, through your life, through your obedience. I get a little crazy over here. Crazy. I believe Jesus returned for a church that's victorious, that is confronting injustice, destroying the works of the devil, not one that is hiding their light and holding on. Jesus, hurry up with the rapture. Hurry up. Hurry up with the rapture. Hurry up with the rapture. Hurry up, Lord. How did Jesus come in for a bride? The moment Jesus arrives, it's going to be like, we're just going to be battling Satan. It's going to be like, and then Satan's going to be like, oh, snap, I'll get my butt whooped. I hope Jesus returns soon. I want Jesus to say, I hope Jesus, I want Satan to say, I hope Jesus returns soon. We should be whipping the devil. You know, when light collides with darkness, light always wins, by the way. There's no contest. The, the fight's already been fixed. All we got to do is fight. Jesus disarmed the powers and authorities. The only power that the, the demonic spirits have is deception. The truth is they don't really have all this crazy power. The power is in the deception. Now, I'm close with this. I will close with this. For, for people who have an Arminian view of theology, they, the victory lies in winning as many souls for heaven as possible. But from my perspective, which is rooted in Calvinism, the victory lies in the manifestation of the kingdom of God on earth through his people. Did you guys catch that? So for Arminians, they believe the victory, the glory lies in getting as many people to heaven as possible. But for me, the the victory lies in manifesting the kingdom through God's people on the earth. Check this out. God's going to save his people. Your slackness in evangelism is not going to cause him to lose people. He's going to be like, well, uh, Jay's on my list. Tina Lee is on my list. But Tom Beatty so lazy with evangelism. It looks like Jay and Tina are going to hell. But that's what Arminians are essentially saying. And that's not the doctrine Jesus explains to us in the Gospel of John. I know my sheep, my sheep, they hear my voice. I know them by name. I will lose none of all that the father has given me. I'm telling you right now, God's going to save his people. He's not going to lose a single one that he has predestined. He's not going to lose any of the ones that he has put his salvific love upon. There's no question. It's never going to happen. We'll lose none of them. So as a Calvinist, I evangelize. Not to maximize the number of people that are going to heaven, but to lessen the time that the lost are lost. Oh, I feel known right now. Come on now. I just, I just dropped, I just dropped 10 years of searching the scriptures and wrestling with the scriptures. And why your pastor is strongly reformed. Let me say that again. I evangelize not to maximize the number of people that go to heaven, but to lessen the time that the lost are lost. Because the sooner you bring them in to the house of the Lord, sooner you establish them in sonship, the sooner you get them filled with the spirit, the sooner that they are a danger and a threat to the enemy. The sooner that they start to destroy the works of the devil. The sooner that they start to heal the sick and healing all those who are oppressed to the devil. The sooner that they just, they go out and find more people that are lost. So you guys know where I'm coming from now, right? So in terms of engaging society, I'm all for engagement. But I do place a great urgency and emphasis on the priority of preaching the gospel and doing ministry. But I have a different motive than the Arminian. I do it. Well, I just explained that. No need to read that again. I evangelize, I disciple, I do ministry. So that I could whip the devil. So I could destroy his works. 
so I can bring glory to my king. You know, check this out. I don't want to see Jesus' reign, his rule and reign put off any longer. It's been put off long enough. I can't stand to see Satan manifesting his will, manifesting his reign of terror on the earth any longer. It's sick. It's sick. It's sick to my, it makes my stomach sick. I want Jesus to reign. I want Jesus to reign. And I know that the full climax of that reign is not going to happen until he actually returns. But check this out. I'm going to make sure there's, no, there's some crazy momentum on the earth. And if God's called me and he sprinkled me here in Korea, oh, Korea's going to get crazy. Oh, oh there's, a, there's a North Korea where people are imprisoned, where people are oppressed, where people are, are lied to, where people are under heavy bondage of idolatry. So what? When Jesus' reign starts touching North Korea, North Korea is going to get radically healed. Look at North Korea. North Korea is a picture where Satan systematically removed every Christian influence in that nation. North Korea is on the earth as a sign to the world of just how important the church is as salt and light. And when the church is systematically removed from its place of saltiness, you get North Korea. But here's the good news. God's purpose for that sign is coming to an end. Now he's going to do a new work. He's going to free the captives. He's going to destroy the works of the enemy where no one will even remember what happened in North Korea at one point. We're going to come to a day where there's going to be so much joy, so much illumination, so much of the church's influence through the entire peninsula that the talk of Kim Il-sung's days would just be a thing of the past. God loves wiping out the name of the wicked from under the earth. You know that? He loves wiping, up the, wiping out their name. The only reason he likes to keep their name around is to make the story good. I'm telling you right now. I bet you there's all kinds of wicked kings that came up to all kinds of power. We don't even know what their names are. Because God's just like, I'm going to wipe it out. And he does it through his people. So do you guys understand kind of where I'm landing at? I'm not, I'm not advocating that we take over Korea with Christian politicians and Christian businessmen and we turn Korea into a Christian nation. That's not a balanced view. It's a remnant being salty. That's the view. Not the Christians trying to take over. Uh, in, the, in the book, it talks about the difference between policies and programs. No, no, principles and policies. Pol- principles and programs. How Christians, we need to engage with the principles of politics, but not necessarily directly, uh, as New Philadelphia Church, I cannot directly support a political program or politician. You know why? What if I'm wrong? Or what if there are people in my audience, in uh, in my congregation, that have a completely different view? Then what? I'm, I'm making them feel guilty by choosing one politician that they, that they oppose. Do you hear what I'm saying? So if I'm up here, I'm like, Obama, 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 and people in here, they hate Obama. Then they just feel like maybe I shouldn't come to this church. Maybe I'm not even a Christian. You know what I mean? It, it just gets all crazy in there. So you just got to talk about biblical principles. And then indirectly through the sons and daughters of the house, they get involved with the direct programs. You know what I'm saying? And this is where I would really differentiate from some of my beloved brothers and sisters. I'm not for this kind of withdrawing, escaping, loving Jesus with all your passion and heart. And just crying out for injustice and then Jesus coming and judging the world. And, and we being locked up in some monastery. Locked up in some, you know? Where we, we, we feel hopeless to even engage social action. That's not me at all, man. That's why I like the seven mountains. It's not a Bible teaching. I'll admit, right? It's not a Bible teaching. But I think it is a biblical strategy. 
If you guys don't know what seven mountains are, go back to one of our podcasts, the Seven Mountain Mandate. Anyway, man, I just, uh, man, I, didn't I say I was going to close like 10 minutes ago? I'm sorry. I'm done. You are the salt of the earth. Come on now. Expand, advance the kingdom of Jesus on the earth through evangelism, through missions, but also through engaging our culture, our society. You are the hope. Jesus is in you, the hope of glory. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for every person in here. I thank you that, God, you have called them not only to nurture their private faith or to nurture their faith within a Christian community, but you mature and nurture them so that they can be sent out to be salt and light on the earth. God, the world is a dark place. There's so much darkness even within this city. And God, we believe because Jesus is living in us by the power of the Spirit, we can bring an end to injustice. We can confront injustice and see it systematically end. We can confront injustice in the life of an orphan and seeing these wrongs being made right. God, make us the people of your righteousness and justice, God. Yeah, we burn, Lord. We burn, God. To see your kingdom come more and more till it culminates at your return. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.